like you'd open your Bibles tonight to the most popular psalm in the Bible, if you would. You're turning to it without me even telling you where it is because you know it's Psalm 23. Psalms 23, it's a psalm that even unsaved people have memorized. We have all probably seen a movie or heard a story about somebody whose life was in peril, maybe in a war situation, the foxhole, and began to quote the 23rd Psalm. That's about as much as they could remember in the Bible because they hear it so much, it's quoted so often. We're very familiar with it, and probably most all of you in here have memorized the 23rd Psalm. There's only six verses to it, but the most famous words in the Psalm are the first verse where he says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How many times we've heard that psalm? I don't know. Been a lot. But it's a psalm in just six verses. You have 13 divine promises made, and we're going to look at all of them. 13 promises in six Verses given by God to his people. This psalm is about a shepherd. A shepherd who has sheep, who cares so much for them that he goes out of his way to abundantly and extravagantly take care of them and make provisions for them. And that's what this whole psalm is about. But what is a shepherd? Because it's about a shepherd. Because it begins about a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd generally is a word that refers to one who watches over sheep, who guards sheep, leads sheep, protects sheep. He's a guardian of sheep because sheep by nature, I am told, I've never raised them. I've never been around sheep very much. I've only heard the stories and read the clips and a book or two, a booklet about the subject. <clears throat> well, I am told that sheep are not very smart, that you have to provide for them, you have to watch over them, they're easy to catch, and once they are caught by something, they give up easy, they wander off and get lost very easy, they're not very smart, they say, and that's who God compares us to, as sheep. If that's a right picture, it does show us how God wants us to see our need. That without a shepherd of our souls, we don't have much of a chance of doing a lot of things right or winding up well. If there's a purpose for a shepherd, I need one, you need one, I have one. We all have one. We, maybe a couple. But the chief shepherd, the shepherd and the bishop of our souls is God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who our shepherd is. And he sees us in this illustration as sheep. I remember once being with another preacher in a farm place where there were sheep or a fair or something. There were sheep there. They hadn't been cut yet. He reached over and grabbed one. It was trying to get away and he was struggling with it and holding it. He said, now watch this. And he grabbed both hands on that sheep and pulled it off the ground until his feet came off the ground and it stopped its struggle. It just hung there. And they say that's why they're so easy to, to catch, so easy to, to kill by wild animals. And, and that's why they're so vulnerable is because they don't know how to take care of themselves. And if you don't take care of them, they won't last a long time. They'll last a while, but they won't last a long time. So you see, God uses shepherd to show us how he relates to us. 
God is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. Because he is, he gives us 13 more promises. The first one is, because he is your shepherd, you'll never lack. That's what he promised. And that he will lead you. And you'll never be led anywhere that he cannot keep you. Or he'll never take you somewhere that's bad for you. God always knows what's best, doesn't he? And he chooses to lead his people. And like he says in the rest of the psalm here. This is how he defines his relationship to us throughout Scripture. Let me give you a couple of verses that that show us how God thinks about us as sheep and him being shepherd. In Psalm 95 and verse 7, he says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That's how he sees us. Another verse in Isaiah 40, verse 11 He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Isn't that a good picture of how God cares about us? Never abusive, always caring, always there to rescue us, but always has our best interest in his mind because that's what a shepherd does. He is a good shepherd, and and he is the one who keeps us going. Now, as we look at this psalm, it shows us, again, from the shepherd's standpoint, how God sees us and how God views us. And again, these 13 promises in here are promises that cover all your life. I don't know why, after we've been in church 30 or 40 years, or 10 or 20 years, that we've been Christians assembled together twice a week for a long time, how we can let, and, and I have to admit, there's times you do let some things slide, but the things that we need are already provided. And though we've read it and we can quote it, it's not like it's a living, vital part of us. You know, I'm not going to take any thought for tomorrow. God will take care of my needs. He said that in both the Old and the New Testament. says it here. It has even a a place there about your death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. He has a rod and a staff. Both are symbols of his authority and his might. And he has a rod and a staff. And what he will do with those is take care of me. He'll meet all of my needs. He'll meet all of my provisions. He'll always look out for my very best interests. But sheep, again, they're notorious for being weak. All we like sheep have gone astray and because we've been allowed in our lives more than we should to drift and not be overseen and not be taken care of. It's true with children today too. A whole generation has grown up without any oversight. All they've gone astray. It's hard to rescue the perishing. It's hard to rescue people that have been allowed to drift and go astray. Only God can do it. And he says that he's going to do that. He's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them to his own heart. Let me show you what the New Testament shows us about our shepherd. Turn to Hebrews 13 for just a moment. Then we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and then 1 Peter chapter 5. If you'll look at Hebrews 13 and verse 20. Here's the picture the New Testament gives us of who our shepherd is. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. Now, he's called the great shepherd. He was defined in the Old Testament, and he is, we're made aware of him in the New Testament, the great shepherd of the sheep. Look in First Peter chapter 2 and verse 25. Showing us the way we were before we got saved and likens us again to sheep and shepherds. He said, for you were as sheep going astray, but now are returned into the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Now that's something only God can do. But listen to me, as a shepherd, he wants to do that. He's willing to do that and he's done that. And he brings you back to him with purpose. 
Of course, you know, we, we talked about that a lot. There's a design on your life and God's going to make you aware of it. In First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Do you believe he shall appear? Well, the last part of the 23rd Psalm, that 13th promise that he makes is, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's no greater promise in this life than to know that that at the end of it all is assuredly yours. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, these pictures that we have of Jesus being shepherd, none is more clear than, than the one that's most graphic. And I want you to turn to John's gospel. Then John chapter 10, where he speaks that for 16 verses here, he talks about how he personally in the New Testament is our shepherd and what as our shepherd we can expect and what he will do for us. John chapter 10. Verily I say unto you, he that entereth not in, not by the door unto the shepherd, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now there are a lot of people that come to the, to the Lord or they come and join a church, but not through Jesus, not because of Christ, not because of their sins. They just become, try to become better people. And verse two, he says, but he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now you read in verse nine that he is the door. He said, I am the door. Verse three, to him the porter openeth and the sheep hear his voice and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now, this should be evident in a Christian's life because this is what the shepherd of our lives, Jesus Christ, how he relates to us and how we relate to him. Let me read it again. Verse, I'm going to read verse 4 again. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now this parable Jesus spoke unto them, but they didn't know what he was talking about. So he begins to say in verse 7, Verily I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. They might have followed them, but they, you know, others did, but his sheep wouldn't. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come as their shepherd that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is a hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. <clears throat> and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have in Shelbyville. Uh, excuse me, th this is talking about the Gentiles here. And other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Them also will I bring, I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And they shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay down my life. I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. This commandment I have received of the father. Now there's two or three things I want to point out here tonight about our attitude as Christians in this picture of 
a shepherd with sheep and us being his sheep and how he cares for us. I mean, he makes the point of saying, I am the good shepherd. I'm not a hireling. I'm not here to get something from you. I'm here to give you what I have. I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm here to give you what I have brought and what I offered you. Let's look at verse 11. Notice in verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now you notice it says there, he doesn't give his life for the world. Now who does it say specifically he gave his life for? His sheep. All the world are not his sheep. Those are pretty argumentative words for a lot of people in different modes of thought about what that means theologically. But Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. To add another section of scripture to it, as many as God gives me for them, I give me. I lay down my life for them. Just like he said in John 17, he said, I pray not for the world. I pray for the ones you gave me. Pray that you're his. Because the ones he intercedes for in Hebrews 7 are his people. Now, he calls his people in this chapter for this moment, he calls his people sheep. You know what? That makes me special. That makes you special. That means that God has singled out of all the mass of humanity that is everywhere, God singled you out to save you because you could not save yourself. Because like sheep, all of us had gone astray. There wasn't a righteous one amongst us. There was nobody who knew enough to save himself. There wasn't anybody gifted enough or talented enough or clever enough to save him or herself. You had to be saved by somebody besides yourself because you weren't able to save yourself and you knew nobody that was able to save you. There was nobody that could offer themselves as a substitute for God to save us except Christ. For all the rest of us were already sinful. He was the only existing human being on this earth before and since who was without sin, without spot, without blemish. And he, by choice, in obedience to his father's will, offered himself up as a sin offering on the behalf of God's people so that God could save them. He does it through Christ. But who he died for, he said, here, I pray not for the world. I pray for my own. He said, I give myself for my sheep. That makes me special. I don't see myself special. You probably don't either. We sometimes get so hooked up in the world out here and all the problems we're facing and the problems that are trying to face us, threats, things, situations, not knowing how to deal with everything. Then we want to pray about it. We want to ask God to help us. And then we don't always feel like we're spiritual enough to deserve his help. Let me tell you all something. God didn't love you because you could perform. God didn't love anybody in this room because of your performance or because of your busyness or because you were able to do more for him than, than maybe others could. It has nothing to do with the, way, the reason he loved you. God didn't pick any of us because we were gifted in some way because we had nothing about us that was desirable. We can claim nothing as a reason God saved us. But the shepherd, which is God, manifested in Jesus Christ, reached down one day. We sang the song. We just sing it. One day the father of glory reached down with his righteous right hand and he, and he picked up whomever he pleased. He didn't say, well, now, you know, Thomas here is trying real hard. He's a good fellow. I think I'm going to save him. It had nothing to do with it. Thomas could never be good enough, could never be advanced enough, could never earn by anything he did, said, or wrote the salvation that God gives. Now, I think about this. The shepherd and the bishop of my soul, in Hebrews 13, 20, is God. 
how did he become my shepherd? He chose to save me. John 15, it was a 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I chose you because it was the Father's will to give you to me. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? I didn't pick you because you were exceptional. I didn't pick you because you were greater or lovelier or prettier. You had absolutely nothing. Nothing you had ever performed, none of your accomplishments, nothing of your physical advancements or achievements. There was nothing that could save you. It had nothing to do with you being saved. And I'll tell you something else. Once he saves you, he didn't love you less because you're not yet perfect. Just because you feel like I'm dragging and I'm not doing so good, he doesn't love you less. His love isn't based on performance. God didn't say, well, I'm going to quit hugging on you if you don't do better. Ain't got nothing to do with it. When God shed his love upon us, when we were brought to him, he loves us no less now. It may be some disappointments, but yet I don't think God is disappointed either because I think God knows the end from the beginning and anything that would be disappointed, he can fix it. So I don't see God going, oh, oh, man, come on. Man, I'm trying so hard. I don't see that. I don't think God's trying to save anybody. I don't think God's trying to perfect us. He's got us on a program and got us walking in a way that's going to perfect us. And he himself in 1 Peter 5, what is it, verse 10, he will himself perfect us. He will finish because he that started will finish. It's not because we're really catching our breath. I'm going to do it. No, it's good to give it your best shot. Trust me with that. But that doesn't make you more loving before the Father. It doesn't make the Father love you more. He loves you at the beginning with an everlasting love, and you cannot go beyond that. His tender mercies and loving kindness that surround you, when do they cease? At what point do you fail so bad that his love for you ceases? If the great shepherd, if I'm talking about a shepherd and his sheep, if he goes out and he gets his sheep and brings it into his sheepfold, and he's invested whatever he had to invest in the natural world to buy this sheep, he's going to take care of it, isn't he? And if it's not doing well, he's got a stick he can chastise it with. Or if it goes to poking around where it shouldn't, they tell me the six has a hook. What do you call that, a staff? And he reached down and put that thing around the neck and give it a little yank and you say, whoa. Or if you're falling, he can grab that thing around your neck and pull you back up a hill with it. To think that every day of your life and every minute of every day, God's watching you. Personally attentive to you. How can he do that? There's a bunch of us. Because he's God. He said in the Psalms, I will instruct you and I will teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. Personally, attentively, 24 hours a day, your best interest is in his heart. Not because you're perfect. Not because you're out here running faster than anybody else spiritually. Because I think love is love when it comes to God's love. And he loves you and he cares about you and that's what he's going to do. He chose me to love me. Think of that. When God chose me, he, he chose to love me. Me. I mean, he knows me better than my wife does. He chose as a divine act of grace for the rest of my natural life on into eternity to love me and to care for me and make sure that I get there. I don't take that for granted because I must make my calling and election sure. I want to make sure that, that I'm living as though I have this divine design on the inside of me and I'm really, I'm really into this the way I should be. 
I'm not taking any of it for, for granted, but I do want to know that God's love for me is as he said it is. It's forever, everlasting. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. How does a shepherd know his sheep? The only time I've ever been around a great flock of sheep one time was in Colorado. We were hunting, I think. Paul was with us and a couple more guys from Virginia. I remember waking up one morning with all this racket outside the tent and opened the tent door and there's sheep everywhere. And uh, kind of, shoo, get out of here, yeah. And here comes a big dog. And he kind of gets close to tent and goes, you wouldn't like a 180 grain bullet right in your middle section there, but you'd best go on. But anyway, the, the Chilean shepherd, he spoke something in, the dog was Spanish speaking dog, so he said something in Spanish to the dog and the dog left. But these sheep stayed together all the time and they had to have watchdogs too. And uh, they were constantly under surveillance. Everywhere this shepherd would go, though, he would speak or say whatever, you know, where these Spanish-speaking sheep understood, that he would say something and these sheep would follow him. I mean, it's just like he talks about here. And they didn't seem to be aggravated. They didn't seem to be tore up. And they were just happy-looking sheep. And they just went wherever he called them to go. But... How would you know your sheep if there were other sheep and maybe another herd of sheep somewhere else? A book I read once about the shepherd years ago, a guy named Keller wrote a book on the 23rd Psalm, and he himself had been a sheep shepherd for several years in East Africa. And he was telling once how he bought at the uh, auction site or wherever he bought them, he bought a bunch of sheep, maybe 30 or 40 head, and they were, as he defined, they were unmarked. So nobody knew who they were. But he got them in his little pen. He took his knife. And they caught them and held them down one at a time and cut a notch of some angle or something in their ear. And it was painful and it hurt. But he put that notch in their ear in such a way that you could look at the sheep from, you know, a little bit of a distance and tell if they were yours or not because they had that distinct mark in their ear. And when he saw those sheep, he knew they were his. And he knew that he could go get them, round them up, and bring them into the sheepfold. Isn't there ways that God knows if we're his? Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, is a sheep. Because it's easy to say, Lord, Lord. You know, a thief and a robber may be in the sheepfold as tares, not wheat. They learn to sing the same songs, and they can raise their hands and clap their hands and they can do all of that like anybody else. But they're not sheep because there's something distinct about us and our shepherd that we recognize our relationship and know that without him, we can't make it. Now, some people realize that. Without Christ, I can't make it. Having church doesn't mean I'm walking with Jesus. Going to religious meetings or Bible studies or something does not mean I'm walking with Jesus. I may be learning about him and I'm gathering in information. That's a good thing because it tells me how to walk with him. But just like a lot of people can quote the 23rd Psalm and have no clue what it's about, of this relationship. There's a deep picture here that if I'm his, there's one distinct way that I know it is through a cross. The cross is a place of crucifixion. And where you used to allow yourself at one time to talk ugly and to run around ugly and do some things ugly that is sinful things, you quit doing that. And the first people that notice you've quit doing things and that you're living differently is your family. They say the proving ground of all ministry is the family, the home. If you can't live it there, don't bring it out here you got to prove it in the hardest place, and that's at home. The missionary who wants to go in the missionary, the hardest place to prove yourself is in the local church. We know you. We watch your life. We know what you're perfect in and what you're not perfect in. 
And so we approve of a life like that, and that's why we give our approval to it. But a true sheep, a Christian who is true indeed, has one distinct feature about his life that marks him as a Christian, and he follows Jesus. He hears his word. He honors what he hears by doing it. He becomes faithful. It's not easy to do, as you know. But if you're his, that's what you do. You hear his voice. How do you know what he's saying? You listen. If they speak not according to this word, it's not the voice of God. So the sheep may hear something that sounds like a shepherd, sounds very spiritual, but he's got to look. He's got to find out, does he speak according to this book? Is his life, does his life complement what this book is about? Is he a person who, who cares about spiritual matters? Does he limit himself at about things that others are unlimited in? Does he stay away from bad places and not do bad things? Does he drink or smoke or carry on and act ugly? He used to do that. When he quits doing that, because something's changed. We would call him a marked man because he's different than he used to be. What about verse 12? Go to verse 12. Verse 12, he says, But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not. He sees a wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep, and he flees. And the wolf snatches him and scattereth the sheep. Now let me ask you a question. What's the difference between a shepherd and a hireling? The well-being of the sheep. When the wolf comes, what does a hireling do? He flees. He's armed with many gifted excuses and he flees whereas the bible says here the shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep that's why he comes he's not his own now god uses under shepherds to be a shepherd does that sound right god shepherds through under shepherds for example he talks in psalm 77 he calls it uh, moses and aaron Moses and Aaron were the people who led his people. In other words, God led his people through Moses and Aaron. Does that sound right? Moses and Aaron were the selected people that God used to lead his people who, like sheep, were taught and trained to follow them. God made sure they followed two human beings because of all the miracles and signs that went with Moses. It was so much so that when Moses died, they said to Joshua, well, what can you do? They didn't say that in the Bible, but they were, you know, Moses, man, he was easy to follow because it was, you know, it was super all the time. But who are you? I mean, you want us to march around Jericho and then holler? I don't know about that. But God led his people through Moses and through Aaron. And also it says that in, in Ephesians 4, 11, we know that God gave to church ministry gifts. These gifts are people. How many you know that a prophet was a human being? Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. He was no different than we are. God put apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers in the church. Their purpose is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is a work that continues until we all come to this unity of the faith, to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature of the very fullness of Christ. So the message of ministry then is Christ, is it not? The great shepherd, the one we should aspire to be like. He is our God. We are to follow him as he speaks. We listen because that's what marks us as being his. We hear his voice. We follow him. You hear a human preacher. You hear human beings. That's what God uses. Ephesians 4, shepherds and, and pastors are people. I'll tell you tonight, some are called and many aren't. Some are gifted by the Lord and some aren't. 
But it's God who gives people to people to lead people. And the purpose of an under shepherd is to lead as God instructs them and God shows them to go. He is to lead them. Because without shepherds, what happens to sheep? They wonder. Remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, they looked upon the fields that are white under harvest. He said, pray therefore that God would send laborers. The time that he said these people, he was feeding them, we're going to feed them. He said, these, these are faint. They are faint. The people, talking about human beings, they are faint like people who have no shepherd. Now the picture you get is that without that inspired, anointed ministry, with all of its flaws, with all of its imperfections, all of its humanity, God's call, divine instruction to people is designed to keep people from fainting. You know what? We should never faint. We should never give up. We should never feel like we have to draw back and we can't go any further because I believe God teaches. Pastors and teachers have a, have a call to teach, don't they? To instruct you. If you don't want to listen, you can't be taught. If you don't want to give heed to what is said, then it goes in one ear and out the other. But somebody will. Somebody here will. Matthew nine thirty six. they fainted and were scattered as sheep having no shepherd. So this other thing about the hireling, then how would you define a hireling? If you had to take a test now, you're not going to, but if you had to take a test and the question was, what defines in the church a hireling? He is obviously somebody who is contrasted with the shepherd because he says a shepherd does this, but a hireling does something else. So they're both talking about similar offices or people standing somewhere instructing and leading God's people, whereas one stays with it and one forsakes them. So what is a hireling? A hireling is a human being, isn't he? Just like us. Just like me. Whoever else in here one day will do this. You better get on the ball because the time, the end is coming. But he said, a hireling is somebody that is hired. He does it for money. In other words, he said, I preach and I oversee a church for a fee. And my fee is called my salary. The church got together, got a board together and said, let's get us a preacher. So they looked for one. They had a pulpit committee. They found one and they enticed, I mean, they... Uh, they offered him a package deal. We will pay you this many thousand dollars a year. We will give you a home with three bedrooms, all expenses paid. We will provide your medical uh, insurance and we will give you a car allowance. And it looks pretty good. So he looks at all of these, the offering of some local church some, somewhere. And uh, he goes and looks at the church because my pastor used to tell me how he'd do this. He looks at the building and boy, it's not much to say, we're going to build us a new one. You're going to have a new church building. All right, that'll help. And so he looks around and talks to a few of the people, preaches a trial sermon. Usually his best he's got, he trials, you know, he brings and preaches a trial sermon to gain the admiration, the confidence or the respect of the people. And if they like him enough, they'll vote him in. Now, what I've just said happens all the time in America. But none of it is of God. I've never found anywhere in the Bible that that's the way it works. Actually, the Bible doesn't say that much about it. The Bible doesn't specifically get into how do you replace an aging pastor in a church. How do you replace an aging pastor? Some of them are getting older, not all of them, but some of them are. And when it comes time to move on, how do you replace them? Do we get a committee together and go out and find one who doesn't know any of us? We don't know him. Or will God raise one up we all know? 
So we can sit back and say, well, I don't know about that. I didn't move here from Timbuktu. To, to, no, this ain't why. Then he's got to fight that. He, he better be a good man. But so many times you put enough of the good stuff in front of a preacher and he will say, okay, I'll preach at your church for that. It's just a job. And when trouble comes or he's going to lose his reputation, then he gets spiritual because now he's called to leave. He's called to move on. Jesus said a hireling is somebody you hire. He does it for money. You can buy you a preacher for two shekels and a shirt, and you can do what he wants. Turn to 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 2 through 4. Here's some instruction for a pastor, for a shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, 3, and 4. Feed the flock of God. Now, feed is a Greek word, poimeno, and it's also translated shepherd. Because that's what shepherds do. They feed, they watch over, they protect, they lead, and they provide for sheep. That's their call. If you don't have that in your heart, don't ever do it. But that's what they do. And here's his instruction. He said, feed. Now he's talking to the elders here. The preachers, three different Greek words here for, for a presbyteros, an episcopos, and a poimeno. They're all three words for elders, bishops, uh, shepherds, and a couple more we'll get to in a minute. And he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by compulsory restraints, but willingly, not for money, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Actually, the word heritage there is the word from which we get the word clergy, kleros. So everything's backwards. We think there's a lay ministry and we think there's a other kind of ministry, but there's only one. And that's the one that God gives and God sends. And you don't know when a man is preaching if he's called or not. You don't know. You don't know how he'll be under pressure. You don't know if his heart is with you, if he has your best interest in mind, if he's willing to preach to you what needs to be said, whether you like it or not. Wouldn't Jesus do that? Would Jesus tell you what he has to say, whether you like it or not? Why? Does he like to see you squirm? No, because the only thing that God has ever given to the church to set the saved free is the word of God. A half truth won't do it. A partial truth won't do it. It has to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us. That's what Jesus would say. I don't think if Jesus could stand here tonight, I don't think he'd play games or toy with any of us. I think he would speak the truth whether we liked it, we Felt it was too hard, too strong, too hot, too cold. Something. He'd preach it anyway. He loves us that much. Because he didn't love us to leave us where we were. His love for us compels him to give to us what causes us to grow and become more like him. Because when, when he was dying, when he was being beat to death, the hair jerked out of his face, beaten over the head with reeds, smacked and bruised up and... Then the thorns and the spear and the back beaten. It didn't, it, Bible doesn't say he just screamed for mercy. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. It must have aggravated his tormentors, but that's the way he was. And he's called us to, to, to be like him. To be fearless, be not afraid, trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and realize that if God sent us, we have a life to live, a mission, and a purpose on this earth. And he would say to ministry, woe unto you if you don't teach my people what I've said. You know that. Your judgment will be greater if you mislead people, and they're called sheep. Sometimes he calls us little ones. He said, you make one of these little ones to stumble, what do you say? It'd be worse for you to have a millstone around your neck and thrown into the ocean. That's how serious God is about how we, from this place, deal with people out there. Don't mislead people. 
Tell the truth. Not that you always get it right. Sometimes we're growing. We, we're learning bits and pieces. We're advancing. But he says he puts people in the church who as representatives of Jesus Christ, they're called under shepherds. They're willing to do this, not for money, not because they were voted in, not because you offer them a package which is all about money, but because it's a call of God. They're compelled to do it. I must do this. And there's other verses I read more today about how Paul felt about this. Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel and so forth. Jeremiah said, I'm not going to preach anymore. He said, his word was shut up in my, in my, by like fire in my bones. And I couldn't hold it in. But that's the difference between somebody who does it because it's God's call and somebody who only does it for money. I remember hearing some Young guys talking years ago about their Bible studies and their meetings. I was at a place and this is, everything was new then. Everything was really brand new. It was all new to me and I met a bunch of people that I didn't know very well. And they got talking about their meetings. Mostly then it was teaching meetings. Everybody traveled, made a couple of trips a week somewhere. I went to Lexington, Kentucky and Indianapolis, Indiana. And sometime down at a place called the Sheep Shed, down in uh, Gordon, Kentucky, and then down to Hopkinsville. I had four or five meetings a week, and I was wearing myself out, I think. But they were sitting around talking about, well, my, I got a meeting that's not doing very good. I didn't, you know, we only had so much money last week. And, and I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to give one of mine up because there's just not any money coming in. I got to thinking, is that why you're doing it? You guys wouldn't last where I'm going because... Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But you've got to kick all of that out of your mind and say, I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it because it's the call of God. And I believe this. This is what I believe. If I'm doing what I'm called to do with my heart and not for any other reason than a service to God and his people, that God will take care of all these other things. And really, we won't have to take any thought. If you're going to preach it, then you ought to do it. I don't think many of them are even around anymore. I'm just saying that Jesus has people that he anoints. You believe that? Ephesians 4? He, Jesus, has given to the church gifts, apostles and prophets. There are people who were gifts. We saw them as human and aggravated them and criticized them, and I don't know about that, and we didn't really honor them because they were too human. A man who's an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher ought to be something next to angels. Flawless. But God gave ordinary people to do this. Sometimes they mispronounce words or misspell words. Oh, I think God might be. Might be. God didn't choose the people to be our leaders that we wanted. You know what they said about Paul? Paul the apostle said his bodily stature is weak. He must have been a little fellow. You know, he got stoned one time. If he's not very big to start with, and they stoned what little bit was there, it must have looked bad. I don't know what, how it all popped back into place, but they didn't stone you with marble. I mean, they, they got closer and closer as the doomsday come. I just kept bouldering those people, stoned them to death. And yet he got up and walked back into the city where the people were that stoned him. Man, he was tough. I don't think his face was all spread out. It looked like a jagged pancake either when he went back in town. I think it all, whatever was wrong, was made right. I don't think he suffered any ill effects of it either. I just think God allows things to happen. We get to see it and they, whoa. The people that it's happening to go, oh. And then God does his miraculous, wonderful restoration work. And we go, wow. It just makes you bolder. Makes you more sure of what you're doing. Makes you more glad of what you're doing. But God has a lot to say about men that are not good. Would you look with me at the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel 34. In verses 16 to 19, let me get verse 15. In Ezekiel, 
16, he talks about, well, in verse 6, he starts talking about his sheep. God looks at his people as sheep. He said, my sheep are scattered. They're all over the face of the earth. They don't know where they're going. They don't even know how to go or get back. They have no shepherd. They have no God-ordained guide, no human voice that they can listen to. There's nobody who cares about them enough. They just say, well, look, I'll preach. You told me what you hired me to do. I signed the contract. I'll preach, and whatever y'all want to do about anything else is your business. Oh, there's a wickedness I won't even try to go into, but it's true. But he says in verse 15, I will feed my flock. And I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord. How will he feed his flock? How will God feed his people? He'll cause words to just all of a sudden appear on your automobile windshield. And you'll wake up and there'll be words emblazoned on the wall. And you go, God's talking to me. You know how he talks to his people? In this book. You read this book. You know, if you read this book, you're hearing what God is saying. You don't hear a voice. You hear your own mind in however the process of thinking is. That's what you hear. But what you're hearing are the words that God has given us. There's no other word he gave us. And he speaks to us. And he says, here, I'll feed my sheep. I'll feed them. I'll poimeno my sheep, as he said in 1 Peter 5. I'll feed them. I'll take care of them. I will seek that which was lost, verse 16, and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between rams and the he-goats, seeming it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but... You must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drink of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. And he goes on through. Talks about it. One shepherd, verse 23, the great shepherd, Psalm 23 shepherd, and he will assign human shepherds over his people. Let me say this again. In the New Testament, a New Testament church always consisted of a pastor and a congregation. You have a man, not some voice or not some unseen person talking. You have a man who sometimes struggles and has to deal with things, but he's a human being, and he's got something from God that's given to him, words, pictures, ideas, shows him things in that sense, and the man with his own words forms what God shows him into words, and he gives them to his people. You judge whether or not it's the Lord's word with the book you're holding in your lap. But that's what he does. He gives you what God gives him. Not everybody that stands in a pulpit as gifted as they are or as powerful as they seem to be is of God. Remember in the Bible, Jesus said there will be those who said, Lord, Lord. But he said, they don't know me. I don't know them. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Judas walked up to Jesus, called him Lord and Master. He said the right words. He could have been a keynote speaker in a big convention. Judas. He went with the crowd. He raised the dead, healed the sick. Judas. He did what everybody did. He was anointed to do things that he did. And yet he was a thief. How could that be? Well, part of it has to do with the fact that God used a man like that to test us. Remember, do you remember Deuteronomy 13? If that prophet or that dreamer of dreams brings to you a dream or a, shows you a sign or a wonder and speaks of it and it comes to pass, and then he begins to declare another way, not God's way, don't listen to him. He said, God is testing you to see whether or not you love him. 
A lot of times people love themselves. They love what makes them feel good, and they'll follow that wherever it goes. Preachers are like that. They love what they get. They love how they feel. They love the prestige of the bigger church. They use a smaller one to make it work to get a bigger one, and hopefully it'll keep going until they get the big one that all the other preachers envy. Not because they love God. See how rude that sounds? But it's because they love themselves. It's amazing what a man can do to get himself where he is admired and, and works hard at doing things, and hard at preaching uh, dramatic sermons. I mean, really playing on the emotion of the story and people go, oh, oh. not because he actually always loves people. He loves what he's getting from it. And yet sometimes the ones that God brings to his people to teach him are everything but that. You hear what I'm saying? And you're not getting that, whoo boy, you ought to come to our church. I heard your preacher. <laughs> Man, you need to hear ours. That's not necessarily where God is leading his people. He could. Didn't they say that many will say to the Lord in the last days, but Lord, we did this, we worked miracles? That's pretty good. Lord, we preached in your streets. We did this. We did that. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I never knew you. We had no connection. There was no give and take between us. You learned how to do things that benefited you. And because people believed my words in your mouth that you spoke to them, I blessed the people. Didn't benefit you because in the end, you lost is that possible? Do you all believe a shyster could memorize a wonderful sermon? You didn't know him. He comes in and preaches with passion a sermon and that people could get saved? The guy's a crook. How could they get saved? Because God honors his word. God honors his word. People believe his word. They believe, they heard his word, they sang his praise. It doesn't mean that the vessel who did it with the design of impressing people, that doesn't mean he got anything for it. He's getting his reward right now, his praise and prestige. But God often puts us, me and you, to the test with a, sometimes a word that's simple or maybe it's a little oversimplified. Something that makes us think, and, and, and we have to deal with it. Is that what God is saying? Because somebody like years ago, that Lebanese preacher, his initials were S.D. I'll just call him S.D. S.D. was about as dynamic behind the pulpit as any man at that time I had ever seen. He could talk about God, and you would just, just want to get on your knees. Boy, he could look at you, and you'd go, oh, God, I'm going forward. You, you want to say to your buddy, did you bring your Bible? He said, yeah. I said, well, open it up to the Roman road. I'm going forward. It's so good. And he, we found out, you know, he called a single girl in our church, wanted her to come to his room to pray with her. He had a message from the Lord for her. She said, how'd you get my phone number? He said, the Lord showed me. It was unlisted. Nobody knew it. Now, how many of you know that you can preach like that and be an adulterer and a mongrel? So you can't label somebody because they have such great technique. Whoa! What you want to do is, what did they say? Who got glorified in all of this? Did Jesus reap the benefits and the glory of it all? Praise the Lord. If they speak not according to my word, Jesus said, they have no light. So you see, a shepherd, again, is the one who watches over his people. Jesus said, I am the great shepherd. I'm the chief shepherd. There are little shepherds under his direction, the ones that are, who will do what he would do if he were here. They are extensions of his ministry. And their job is, as he said, to feed his people. What did he say to Peter? Feed what? 
Feed my sheep. That's all he asked him to do. Feed my sheep. Paul describes feeding as a labor. Those who labor amongst you, who give you the good word of faith. He said, count them worthy of double honor and so forth. But it's something about the effort, the divinely given effort to bring forth something that is anointed. Maybe not dramatic, but it's anointed. Let me close tonight by saying, by saying this. How many people, I said this earlier, how many people can repeat the 23rd Psalm without fully realizing the depth of it? I mean, the first part, the Lord is my shepherd. So you ask yourself a question. There's four questions I want to ask you about his oversight of your life. Would you agree with me that if he's your shepherd, he has oversight of your life? That you are under his watchful care? Okay, four questions, and we'll close. One, do you really belong to him? I'm talking to you tonight, maybe whoever's watching. Do you really belong to Jesus? Can you prove to yourself? Do you know you do? Was there a time in your life when you turned it over? Can you remember it? Can you remember when you asked God to save you? Can you remember that? Did you ask to be forgiven of your sins? If you did, and God brought that upon your life, well, what follows is my sheep hear my voice and what? They follow me, are you? That's the way you know. If you're his, you follow him. Second question, do I really recognize his right to my life. I have been bought with a price. You know what the price was? The blood of Jesus. Not with the blood of sheep and goats or bulls and goats, but the precious blood of Christ. When he shed that and God used that to save you and he made you his own, do you recognize tonight his right to you? Thirdly, do I respond to his ownership of me and his authority? Does he have a right to use me any way he wants to? Does he have a right to my life to do with as he pleases? I'd ask you a question. Does he? Does he have a right to your life? Does he have a right to your life? Of course he does. It doesn't even belong to us anymore. It's his. The shepherd should be able to say, we're going this way, and you say, we're going this way. I'm only repeating what he said. If he says, I want you to go on a mission field and you'll never come back, then you go and you never come back. He said to those saints in the book of Revelation, he said, be faithful for so many days and then you're going to die and then you get a crown. So they said, good, we're going to be faithful and then we're going to die and then we're going to get a crown. Revelation 12, they love not their lives under the death. God has a right to use me any way he wants to. I have no right to resist him. Well, do you believe that? Let me ask you my fourth question. Do I find my contentment and peace in him? Am I at peace and content with his oversight of my life? Do you think if a sheep had a belly full of grass and a belly full of clean steel water, there's a little flowing a little bit, you know that, but if the sheep is being led in the places that Jesus said he leads the sheep, they're eating the best there is to eat and nothing can get them and nothing can take them and rob them because he is the one who is watching over them all the time. Are these sheep content? They sure are. Anybody takes that good of care of me, I don't want to get away from him. Amen. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and so forth. We'll get to that. He's a shepherd. That's what a shepherd would do. Do you have that? Amen. Well, if you do, then he's your shepherd.
Jesus Christ is your shepherd. Personally watching over your life, paying attention to everything you do, has a program to correct you, to refine you, and in the end, to present you faultless before the throne of his grace. That's Jude. Can you imagine? But he can. Not everybody's going to experience that. But the sheep will. Are you with me? Goats won't. Sheep will. Amen. Close your Bibles. Bow your head with me. Father, I ask you to bless your word to your people. Open our hearts and our eyes to receive it. And I ask you, Lord, to prepare our hearts to receive your word. To benefit from the moment you provide for us as we come together. If you don't do that, and if we don't desire that, nothing will ever happen. Because you can, I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.